Welcome to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded podcast of the Marine Corps War College, covering the intersection of strategy, security, and warfare. Welcome to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded podcast of Marine Corps University. Today, we're discussing the new Naval Education Strategy. My guest today is Mr. John Kroger. Mr. Kroger is Chief Learning Officer for the Navy and the first individual to hold that position. Mr. Kroger served as an enlisted Marine for three years before going on to complete his undergrad and master's degrees at Yale and law degree at Harvard, bucking every stereotype you have ever heard about Marines and crayons. After school, he served with the Justice Department as a prosecutor and as the Attorney General of the State of Oregon. Before transitioning to the position of Chief Learning Officer, Mr. Kroger served as the President of Reed College. Mr. Kroger, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Before we start our discussion, tell us a little bit about your background. How did a former enlisted Marine transition to become the president of a college and now the individual in charge of naval education? Well, I took this job for two reasons. Um, One is that I believe 100% that in an era of great power competition, it's really important that the Navy and Marine Corps emphasize education and the intellectual development of our force. And I was really honored to be asked to, to be part of that effort. The other real big motivation for me is a debt I feel I owed um, because of the way the Marine Corps supported my own education when I was young. So I enlisted in the Marines when I was 17 and served in the 1st Recon Battalion out at Camp Pendleton. And throughout my time in the Marines, the Marine Corps was incredibly supportive of the idea that I should go to college, that I should pursue my education. And um, when it came time to go to college, I... Uh, was admitted to Yale, and my freshman year was going to start three weeks before my enlistment was over. And rather than making me finish my enlistment and wait for 11 months and then go to college, the Marine Corps actually cut me orders, sending me to college. Um, They said, put on civilian clothes, go to college, and when the time comes, discharge yourself from the Marine Corps. And I've always thought that was an amazing thing. It was a remarkable support for my education. And so when I was asked to do this, um, I thought if I could pay that forward uh, by helping other Marines and sailors advance their educations, that that would be uh, uh, a really rewarding thing to do. That's a remarkable story. And I think it, it speaks to the importance that monitors have on Marines' lives. And in, a different individual in that position could have sent you on a very different trajectory. That's exactly correct. I, when I think about Marines and sailors pursuing their education, I, I think it's always important to say they have two responsibilities. Yes, they have a a responsibility to advance their own education, Mm -hmm. but Marines and sailors also have a a responsibility to look out for the education of the people they supervise or command. Um, I've always thought it was remarkable that my battalion sergeant major, my company CEO, uh, really believed in education enough to support me when I was 17 or 18 in a Lance Corporal. And I'm hopeful that as we advance the education for sea power effort, will have people in the community take responsibility for the Marines and sailors that they command um, and work really hard to try to advance the education of the people that they serve with. Absolutely. So your position was established as a result of the Education for Sea Power initiative. The report came out December of 2018, and we had Captain Andrea Slough come on our podcast a few weeks ago to talk about some of the, the impetus behind the Naval Education Strategy. Of course, she came to Marine Corps University 
from the Secretary of the Navy's office. And we see her really as the first benefit of Education for Sea Power, or E4S, as people talk about it in the field, because she's the first Navy captain we've had at Marine Corps University in roughly a decade. Briefly for our listeners, what is E4S looking to accomplish? It's more than just bringing a Navy captain to MCU. It's a lot more than that. So uh, the Education for Sea Power study was uh, really the first top-to-bottom review of education in the Navy and Marine Corps for 100 years. And the conclusion that was reached was that in an era where a lot of our economic and technological advantage that we've had over potential adversaries has dwindled, our real great potential advantage over our adversaries is our intellectual capabilities. And we need to invest in that. We need to develop our force and its intellectual and analytic capabilities to be capable of reaching our full potential as a fighting machine. For me, the E4S study is 100% on target. And so our goal are, is really to try to educate at a deeper level our entire force uh, throughout their career. So that's going to mean different things for different sailors and Marines. For the enlisted force, it means a brand new community college to help our enlisted sailors and Marines get an associate's degree, most of them in technical fields that are badly needed in terms of capabilities for our, our military forces, but will also help them later in life if they decide to leave the service. And for our officers, it's a process of continuous education. And it's going to be somewhat different in terms of its application on the Navy and Marine Corps side. It's an integrated vision, but there's going to be different changes to the educational system for the Navy and for the Marines. Mm-hmm. So this idea of intellectual overmatch, it's frankly one of the motivations for us to start this podcast is we have 100,000 students across all of our MCU programs on any given year, officer enlisted, resident distance. But there are a lot of people on any given year who don't get to come to school and don't get to invest, particularly not full time in their intellectual development. And so this is our small one of our small ways to help. If you're interested in things related to PME or, or the Marine Corps or in naval strategy, generally broadly defined naval history, you can come every other week and spend 30 minutes and listen to a podcast while you're driving or, or running or doing whatever it is. So it, it's it's encouraging to see yep. that it's not just this one little pocket that we're trying to advance here at MCU, but a much larger, broader initiative. Well, I would say that's the general idea that uh, underlays the entire education for sea power effort. We have uh, hundreds of thousands of people spread all across the globe We can't get all of them to a classroom um, in a traditional brick-and-mortar sense. So how can we take more education out to the fleet? And so uh, the Naval Community College for the Enlisted Force is going to be 100% online. And we're also working toward new programs for officers, both online and so-called limited residence programs, uh, that will bring people to campus for a short period of time and allow them to pursue their graduate education Um, their professional military education, without leaving their current duty station. So you were here at MCU this morning to roll out the Naval Education Strategy for us, and it houses some of these initiatives, Naval Community College and then uh, the mid-career warfighting curriculum for officers. As we move forward with implementation of Naval Education Strategy, are those the two key highlights? What do you see as the real takeaways for our listeners to know about? I would say there's three main goals of education for sea power. One is that we educate our entire force. So I think we have key areas where we have not done enough. Uh, We have not done enough to educate our civilian Department of Navy um, staff who are remarkably important in IT and financial management um, in logistics. 
Um, we have not done enough to educate our enlisted force. And as the warfighting space becomes more technical in, in, in nature, um, greater intellectual capability, um, taking full advantage of the intellectual potential of our enlisted force is hugely important. Uh, and then for officers, um, we often have had education that's periodic rather than continuous. And so the goal is to really provide a range of educational options so that officers are virtually constantly pursuing graduate professional military education throughout their career. So educating the entire force, a main, a main effort, making sure that our personnel systems incentivize and reward education is another major area. Um, and here, the Navy and Marine Corps are, are quite different, the two radically different promotion systems, different uh, fitness and evaluation systems. So the changes will be different for the two forces. Probably more profound changes on the Navy side. Right now, the, the Navy's evaluation system for officers does not evaluate the extent to which they've pursued their education. And um, frankly, there are many people in the Navy who feel that time out to pursue a graduate degree is a negative in terms of one's career prospects, not a positive. So we're going to be making changes to the personnel system to remedy that. When the education strategy comes out later this week, you'll see a whole section devoted to talent management, to the idea that we need to align career paths and education. And the last thing is we need to make sure that we've got a world-class uh, naval university system. The collection of the five institutions, including Marine Corps University, that provide education to our, our sailors and Marines. In some ways, um, you'll see more investment in things like wargaming. Um, you're also going to see development of new curriculums at, at many of the institutions. What do you see as some of the greatest impediments to change? You know, uh, it's hardest to change when you're really good. That's the honest answer, right? Um, organizations that are incentivized to change um, are usually ones that are at risk of failure. And um, the challenge for the Navy and Marine Corps is, you know, we're the dominant naval forces in the world, and that's unquestioned. And so for some people, um, I think it's, it's hard to get your brain around the idea that we need to change um, because we're already really good, right? Um, sometimes when I'm speaking, Often, particularly retired officers, will say, what is the problem you're trying to solve? Aren't we, aren't we already really good? And the answer is that um, we've been the dominant naval force since, uh, you know, probably 1943. Um, if we want to stay that way, we're going to have to invest in our people. The reality is that America's economic advantages over our, our near peers like China have really dwindled. And, you know, the reason that matters is, is that historically military power and economic power have been very closely linked. And so if you think about uh, 1990 when the United States had an overwhelming economic advantage over everyone else in the world, um, it was easier for us to maintain our military predominance. If you're talking about a world where the Chinese economy is just as vibrant as ours, just as productive as ours, if you believe in that link between the economy and military force, then that should worry you. It means that we can't rest on our laurels, that we need to make sure that we're performing at 100% of our potential. And I really see that as what the goal of education for sea power is. How do you take really smart people and provide them with the education that will get them at their fullest potential? So fast forward five years, what concretely would you like to see look different? Uh, so very concretely, I would love to see a naval community college that has 40,000 sailors and Marines enrolled, pursuing associate's degrees in fields like data analytics, computer science, um, cyber warfare, engineering, management. 
and that those students were both advancing to an associate's degree, but also getting certificates from industry as they go along. Um, that will give us a much deeper capability in a lot of the technical areas we need to run a 21st century force. I would like to see a major increase in the number of officers pursuing their education through our, our military educational institutions. So one of the things I did when I came in is really develop the first statistical analysis of our educational system. And particularly in, in, on the Navy side of the house, we really need to get more officers into graduate education. And finally, I'd love to see our educational system focus even more clearly on direct warfighting challenges. And that probably means a greater degree of our education occurring in a classified space so we can talk more forthrightly about our own capabilities, our own vulnerabilities, and the capabilities of our adversaries. So you had mentioned the Naval Community College a couple of times already, and, and to my mind, this is potentially the largest change to come out of, of Education for Sea Power or the Naval Education Strategy. What can you tell our listeners about where we are in terms of standing up the NCC, the hiring of a, a president and provost? What is the the pathway look like to get the program accredited. The first cohort is anticipated to come in January of next year. That's a very aggressive timeline. How is this moving forward to actually having students start their first classes? So I'm really excited about the pace we're moving. So I came uh, into my job as chief learning officer in October, and uh, moving the, the, the community college forward is one of my highest priorities. So we've during that time, identified our location. Uh, it's going to be located here at Quantico alongside Marine Corps University. And uh, uh, Marine Corps leadership has been very helpful in, in helping us identify the space and start identifying IT capabilities and things like that that we need to succeed. Um, we've done a first operational plan for how the community college will work. Um, we put out a request for information to our civilian higher education partners to start talking with them about delivery of education through our community college. So our current plan is to deliver roughly 95% of the actual coursework through civilian universities. And so we've been building that partnership. And actually, um, later this week, have a uh, uh, an industry day we're holding at the Naval Academy, uh, meeting with about 70 different civilian universities who want to participate in the community college. Um, we are, as we speak, um, in the process of hiring a president and provost. Um, I'm actually, right after this podcast, going to drive back to the Pentagon because I have an interview with one of our, our candidates and appreciate your leadership in, in interviewing uh, the semifinalists uh, for that role. And uh, so we hope to have a president in place um, by March. Um, we'll start identifying concretely what civilian universities we're going to partner with um, by uh, issuing an RFP probably in April. We're working with the Marine Corps and the Navy to identify the first cohort of students that will go through. And we're currently on track to have people enrolled in the pilot project um, to show how this will work in January of 2021. So um, we're moving at a what would be a, a fast pace even in the private sector. It's, it's pretty rewarding. Yeah. And being located here in Virginia, ultimately the NCC will be accredited through the Southern Association of Colleges and Schools, the same folks who accredit us here at MCU. I assume so. Yeah, we're, we, we've intentionally left uh, accrediting decisions open um, until we hire a president. One of the 
main things I believe is, is you hire the right people and then you give them responsibility and authority to chart the course. And so I really want them to take leadership and ownership over the design of the community college. I would presume, I mean, our goal is a fully accredited community college that um, will pursue regional accreditation. Um, but as you know, the accreditation world is changing as we speak. So uh, we'll, we'll, we'll leave some uh, potential leeway to pursue another course. Mm-hmm. So another key to success for this strategy, in my mind anyway, is better connecting PME and talent management. How would you like to see this relationship change in the coming years to ensure that we've got the best of the service teaching in the classrooms and the best of the service engaged in learning and then going on to positions that that can benefit from their time in education? You know, the main thing I would say is that our personnel system has to really reward people for pursuing their education. And um, it's interesting, the commandant in his planning guidance talked about the end of consequence-free education. What he really means is that we're going to reward the people who work really hard in their schools uh, with greater responsibility and quicker promotion. And I think that's fantastic. It's an example of what we need to do generally in our personnel system, which is make sure that people are not just supported pursuing their education, but rewarded for it so that we're aligning professional ambition with education. Significant changes on the Navy side, probably less profound um, on the Marine Corps um, side because of the changes the Marine Corps made to require more education from the officer corps, you know, 20 years ago. But overall, I would say the goal is to make sure that we're using our education system wisely. We're targeting at education at the right people, and then they're, they're rewarded for that hard work. I do think part of that is, is focusing on the career paths of, of people who are taking time out from their operational career to be educators. It is somewhat notorious that it's not always the best career move to take time out to teach, particularly in, in, in the Navy you know, the education for sea power report identified this concern that uh, if you take time out to teach at the Naval Academy or the Naval Postgraduate School, it's viewed as time away from your operational role and, and, and a negative when it comes time for promotion. And we need to make sure that our very best people are taking time in the classroom. I mean, I always think about the great leaders of the Navy in World War II, um, Admiral King and Admiral Nimitz, both spent multiple tours as teachers viewed it as essential. Uh, Admiral Nimitz later said that the most valuable and important part of his career was his time as an ROTC instructor at Berkeley. I think it can be incredibly rewarding for people's intellectual development to take time off to teach uh, the next generation. And we need to make sure that the career paths of, of our officers who are teaching or senior NCOs who are taking time off to teach in an NCO academy are, are, are protected in their career and rewarded for that rather than punished. So for our listeners who want to lean into their professional education, not necessarily in a schoolhouse environment, but anyone who's listening to this show, what topics do you recommend they explore? So one thing that I'm really excited about, we're creating a brand new curriculum called the the Mid-Career Officers Curriculum. Um, It'll be available to Navy and Marine Corps officers. It's going to have uh, online courses in roughly 20 fields directly linked to one's professional development to your warfighting capability. And I can't wait for that. Um, we're already working on the curriculum. I can't wait for that to be out there because I think it'll be a great vehicle for officers to pursue their professional military education, regardless of where they are across the globe. Sometime in the next year? 
You know, we literally are putting together the working group and the planning as we speak. Uh, we're going to probably focus on on three to five classes to get it up and running. Um, and how quickly we can do that, I'm not sure. It'd be lovely to have something up this year, uh, at least as a test course. Um, but we're not quite there yet in the planning process. You know, the other thing is I'm a huge believer in in the power of reading for intellectual development. You know, I would say, despite the fact that I've had a fantastic education, I think the greatest education I've received is just by being a, a lifelong learner. I, I, I read every day. It's, it's inconceivable to me that I would have a day that would go by without reading. And being a very active reader, you know, I, I, I always think about not just reading a book passively, but reading it aggressively. I take a lot of notes in books. I try to synthesize um, what I'm reading. I'll often, very often, wind up writing a short article or a, or a short essay about whatever I'm reading at the time to try to pull together what I'm reading and process it so I'm getting full intellectual advantage out of it. You know, I think for me, I think uh, military history is the single most important thing our officers can be reading. I think that while there are new things that are surprising, you can learn so much by focusing on campaigns in the past, particularly World War II and the Falklands War, um, two great areas uh, for people to focus. Hmm. So uh, one of our, our faculty members, Jim Lacey, has a, had a book come out in the last year, maybe even six months, called Washington's War, about the grand strategic national policy level decision making mostly in Washington, but also with our allies during World War II. So if you haven't read that book yet, I commend it to you. Fantastic. It is phenomenal. But the last question is, this is our standard question we ask all of our guests. Taylor written for you, though. What are you reading right now that our speakers should know about? I I usually read somewhere between three to five books simultaneously. Um, One of the books I'm reading right now is the official uh, United Kingdom history of the Falklands War. Hmm. And I have to say, it's it's not my favorite book on the Falklands. Um, uh, Sandy Woodward, the commander of the task force that liberated the Falklands, has written a book called 100 Days, which is a remarkable account of what it's like to, to lead an expedition like that. The reason I think the Falklands is so interesting, I mean, it's our only real naval full-fledged combat in the Missile Age. And you can learn quite a bit, even though it's an earlier level of technology, learn a lot about uh, the real vulnerability of, of naval vessels in a missile uh, naval era. The other is the focus on logistics. It's remarkable that the, the campaign was really focused on, on logistics because they were operating, you know, 8,000 nautical miles away um, from uh, home ports in the UK to, to the Falklands. And so it wasn't a case that you imagined a strategy and then built the logistics around it. You determined what the logistical possibilities were and then let that dictate the strategy. And I think that's really useful for the United States to think about as we talk about, you know, the possibility uh, of warfare on, you know, expeditionary frontiers that are 6,000, 8,000, 10,000 nautical miles away from the U.S. So, Mr. Kroger, thank you so much for coming on the show. To keep up with the good work of Marine Corps University, follow us on social media at at Marine Corps U. Thanks to our producer, Jen Padja Howell, our show manager, Captain Matt Brewer, and the Marine Corps University Foundation for their support. I'm your host, Becky Johnson. Thank you for listening to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded, innovative podcast of Marine Corps University. This concludes the EGA podcast. Thank you for joining us. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the United States Marine Corps or the Department of Defense. 
You can follow the Marine Corps War College on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at at McWarCollege. And as always, our podcast music is Stuck in Traffic by Romero. Have a great day.